What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain when you're talking about one of the true OGs from the psychedelic movement, you have to mention Stan Groff. From his early work in LSD psychotherapy to pioneering an entire non-psychedelic-focused method of healing trauma and reaching heightened states that he calls holotropic breathing, a practice that has been taken and evolved and advanced in a variety of different ways, but still practiced in the truest form where you're utilizing your breath to access different levels of consciousness, something that I've talked about on this podcast with Anahata, something that I've experienced many times in my life. We owe all that to Dr. Stan Groff. It was one of my life's honors to sit down and talk with him. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. So there's very few people in the universe that I would start a podcast asking this question. But since I have you here, I thought I would start the podcast with this question. What is the ego what is that i do what is the ego what is the ego oh um. you know i was trained as a psychoanalyst mm -hmm. and the freud's definition was that the ego is our capacity to perceive accurately uh, reality around us, material reality, and find the appropriate uh, way of responding to it. And that created in psychology a major concern of having a strong ego and not mm -hmm. do anything that would kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, sh uh, shake up the, the ego. And this was in conflict with what you hear in the uh, spiritual world where the egg, the ego is always bad for you, whether it's strong or weak. And so... Um, yeah, you had the term a healthy ego, you know, like that was what you wanted. I want a healthy, yeah. strong ego. That was the old idea. The idea of it's, it's bad for you, whether it's strong or weak, you want to get rid of it. It's, it's in the way of your spiritual uh, development. So now the way uh, the... Uh, ego appears in uh, the context of consciousness research, particularly the psychedelic research that I have done. It's uh, something that's forged, among others, the experience of birth. When we go through the birth canal and it sort of gives us a sense of being separate from, from everything. It's kind of imprinting, forging, sense of separate identity. And also... Uh, the experience of that confinement when the environment is hostile, it gives us a feeling that we should be strong and should be sort of in control and should be, uh, you know, dealing with the with the world from a from a powerful, solid 
place. And then, of course, in the psychedelics, you experience ego death. Mm -hmm. So there's tremendous fear in professional circles because they have the definition of Freud. The idea that if you lose the ego, you will You'll be weakened. You somehow. will not be able to handle everyday reality. You will not be have the accurate perception and the ability to respond adequately. Now, um, before what, you, before you continue, can you do you mind moving the microphone a little bit away from your chin? Because I think we're rubbing, getting the sound. Yeah, okay. perfect. Yeah. So, what is it that dies in uh, the process of death rebirth? It's really a false ego, something that uh, the false self. Yeah, that something that uh, that uh, Gurdjieff called Kunda buffer and so on. Uh, so. Um, when you when you lose that ego, it doesn't impair in any way your uh, ability to function in the world. Like uh, suddenly you won't be able to tie your laces, shoelaces, or buy your hamburger or whatever. <laughs> but it really it it spills of this this false ego, which is your sense of uh, identity and being in the world the way it was experienced in uh, in the Bereskana, forcing the the sense of uh, very clear uh, separation between you and the external world, and the external world is potentially uh, dangerous for you. So the ego in that regard was perhaps a, an attempt to try and gain control over something that felt out of your control. So, uh, and of course, if you experience that ego death, you'll find out that all that you've left is now the, uh, to use Marx, Karl Marx, you use the manacles, you make the restrictions and the limitations, you'll be much much freer in the world without losing the capacity to relate to material reality. Mm -hmm. And in some way you will also be able to function better because you will have more uh, emotional freedom. You know, so that's uh, something that could be described by the by a story by Franz Kafka, which is called The Barrow. It's a story about something like a mole who creates, who digs under the ground and then creates, expands it and has a little home there. And he's sitting there for a while and says, great, I have a home. <laughs> and then this paranoid idea comes and says, there could be an enemy. He gets here, I'm cornered. I have to make an emergency exit. And then goes back and for a while feels comfortable. And then another idea says, there can be two of them. <laughs> so uh, to, to live with this kind of an ego in the world you try to do things to be safe for security and so on, and we do it on a on a global scale, like when there was the danger of atomic war between United States. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the collective to pr ego produce, producing yeah. enough of the uh, of the uh, rockets of the mm -hmm. of the you know more than enough rockets, enough and, rockets and to obliterate so, everything. So we are so so concerned about be, being safe that we create a very unsafe world when if i think it's estimate of if two percent of the nuclear arsenal were exploded it would be over for for everybody but the classic were, mole yeah there was uh some of it was expressed actually in funny sexual language there was some discussion about the russians and the americans and, and the, an american general says uh, we have to harden our missiles. <laughs> the Russians are a little harder than we are. <laughs> so they were counting the missiles and be yeah. sure that they have, you know, so that fear, the irrational fear, 
suddenly leads to behavior that actually is, is uh, dangerous. Yeah, that makes sense. And people also act that way frequently in, in uh, everyday life because they, they feel threatened by something that is not out there, that is a projection of this fear. So if you can get rid of that ego, you, you feel that you're more part of the world. Mm -hmm. the, the boundaries, the, the separation is not that that firm, you know. I think one of, in my own, you know, personal practice, and I think one of the key elements of getting rid of the ego is also recognizing what is left when you do. And that's, you know, your, your true self, which is your consciousness is the term that I like to call it, you know, in my own language, that sense of being, you know, sure. the observer of the ego, that force that's animating life, just quote what Don Miguel Ruiz would describe it as rather than, you know, the manifestations of the mind and, and to really become in touch with that and realize that that's what you are. So many of your problems start to fade away. You know, all of these fires that you thought you had to put out, you know, all of a sudden when you recognize your true self, you can just let them die out on their own. You don't need to go call all the fire trucks and put them out because they're not really real. They're not part of who you truly are. And I think that's been a big part of the Buddhist teaching, but somehow, you know, and many other, other spiritual traditions at their core, but somehow we lost the way. How did we lose the way so badly when we had this wisdom at some point, or at least some people had it, and then we, we kind of lost it collectively? Well, I think what happened during the um, scientific industrial revolution, you know, particularly in England and then France, that uh, major uh, inventions were made, technological inventions, like starting with the steam machine and so on, and then they were converted into inventions, technological inventions that started changing the world. Suddenly they were, you know, railroads and things like mm -hmm. that, and trains and you know, all kinds of mechanical gadgets. And uh, what it created was a kind of intoxication that led to a hubris. We are rational, rational people. Uh, for example, uh, for several years, the uh, Notre Dame in Paris was renamed the Temple of Reason. And so suddenly it was reason, you know, that was important. And everything that was not rational was seen as irrational and as that kind of a leftover of the dark ages, of the, of the childhood of uh, humanity. Uh, there was a kind of a uh, very... Uh, uh, sort of a dismissive uh, attitude towards the native cultures. They were the primitive, they were the savages. We are now the mature sort of uh, rational yeah. rational beings. Well, now, it, it seems that also there was some reason for that in that a lot of the metaphysical and spiritual traditions were entwined with poisonous beliefs. Yeah. You know, and so they didn't know how to extract the tumor yeah, from the yes, organism. Very much so, yeah. But you see, what, what happened also that uh, not everything that's not rational is irrational. The mystics are not necessarily irrational. The mystics have experienced dimensions of reality that are normally not available to our physical senses. And they had to incorporate it into their worldview. So they still were able to function. They still could function in everyday life, but they suddenly had certain information showing that the vast dimensions that are not available to senses, yet extremely important. So it was something like what happened in at the end of the 15th century 
where Columbus, you know, the people started coming and they, telling these worlds that are out there and bringing new spices and so on. People had to expand their worldview. Suddenly there was a, there was a new information coming. So this is what the mystics uh, were in. The mystics discovered that there is a more to existence than what, what meets the eye, what, what you experience in everyday life. So the, the baby was kind of thrown out of the bathwater. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, all these things were seen as, you know, as primitive or as even pathologized. And now, in the, since the, maybe in the mid of uh, the, the 20th century, we started very sort of um, laboriously sorting out, you know, trying to recover the healthy things that were involved, like what was happening in... Uh, shamanic rituals, what was happening in the rites of passage and, and what was happening in the mysteries and so on, that this was not just sort of uh, hocus-pocus, you know, some kind of woo-woo stuff, uh, magical, irrational thinking, but that it was really relating to some uh, very important dimensions of, of human personality and also the, the universal scheme of things. Yeah, and when you say what we started to do in the middle of that century, for a lot of people will just say we as the collective, but you actually mean you as part of that because you yeah. were one of these forces that was paddling the boat, that was recovering the, the good pieces and yeah. building back rituals and creating new rituals that could help guide people back to the healthy yeah. parts of these metaphysics. I was part of a small group of people who formulated the principles of transpersonal psychology with Abe Maslow and Tony Sutich and Jim Fediman, for example, uh, where um, Tony Sutich and Abe Maslow had started humanistic psychology in the 50s as a, as a reaction to two schools that dominated somehow the academic circles, which was Freudian analysis and, and behaviorism. They started seeing the limitations you know, trying to understand humans by studying uh, rats and pigeons <laughs> didn't suddenly make sense. Or trying to create human uh, psychology by specif specifically focusing on on uh, populations of psychiatric patients, the way it was done in psychoanalysis. So they discovered this uh, new uh, psychology called humanistic, you know, which was... Unlike behaviorism, they were also honoring the introspection. Behaviorists didn't want to hear anything about consciousness. They wanted to just sort of uh, observe behavior. Uh, there's a joke, I don't know if I can mention it here. But you can, for sure. It's a joke that transpersonal psychologists make about behaviorists. And it's about a couple who are both behaviorists and they make love in the bedroom. And when it's over, he looks at her and says, it was fantastic for you. How was it for me? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so humanistic psychology brought again back importance of introspection, yeah. consciousness, and also uh, focusing not just on a population of psychiatric patients, but not only uh, so-called normal people, but what uh, Maslow called the growing tip of uh, population, people who had some extraordinary capacities, and he actually studied people who had missed spontaneous mystical experiences. He called it peak experiences. Mm -hmm. And he started sort of arguing, you know, with, with mainstream psychiatry, these are not uh, manifestations of mental disease. 
he didn't find any indications of uh, psychiatric illness in these people. And uh, he found out that if these experiences are properly integrated, they actually are conducive to what he called self-actualization, self-realization, uh, enhancement of uh, creativity and developing your full, full uh, human, uh, human potential. Yeah. And humanistic psychology became very popular and was, uh, you know, creating conferences which were well attended by professionals as well as the lay population. And so a, a Maslow and Tony Sutich could have been very satisfied, but they were not because they realized they left out something very important, which was anything related to spirituality. Not even humanistic psychology had that. They didn't, there was no, no way of relating from that perspective to spiritual practice, to meditation, even to things like love or or creativity. And and those are the pathways to be able to duplicate these peak experiences. Yeah. If you just wait, sitting around hoping, you know, that the that this will happen, it's like going somewhere and hoping a tornado hits, you know, like maybe it will. Yeah. But if you're a storm chaser, you better, you know, look for the conditions yeah, yeah. and create the conditions that are going to put you in the most favorable place. Yeah. And that's really, I think, where you kind of came in and said, all right, these peak experiences can lead to transcendent self-actualization. Let's try and figure out how we get there, right? So we had, we had um, meetings, you know, and we were brainstorming this. And, and we finally ended up with uh, psychology, which we felt made a lot of sense because it was not making uh, psychotics of every founder of religion or a prophet or... or uh, uh, you know, one of the, the apostles or f followers and yeah. so on, or shamans. It treated with respect the uh, ritual and spiritual history of humanity. And it was also integrating the observations from consciousness research. And this is where I came in. I was invited by Maslow to bring in the observations from psychedelic uh, research. And so initially they wanted to call it transhumanistic psychology. And then I wrote a paper which was called Varieties of Transpersonal Experiences. And then they liked the term, so they started calling transpersonal psychology. And so for a while we, we felt really this psychology made sense, but we could not find ways of linking it to what we knew as science, as the, you know, hard mm -hmm. science, because it was in such conflict with what Fritjof Capra, the physicist, called uh, Cartesian-Newtonian paradigm, monistic, materialistic science. And we didn't know what to do with it. And then Fritjof Capra actually published the book, The Dao, Dao of Physics, where he showed that the worldview that was emerging from quantum relativistic physics was rapidly converging with the worldview of the great spiritual philosophies of the East, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on. He published the book, The Dao of Physics, which had uh, on the cover pictures of the particles created in collisions, the mm -hmm. linear accelerator, and over it he had a dancing Shiva, <laughs> not a Raja. Science coming together with spirituality. And so his book came out, and Francis Vaughan, one of the pioneers of transpersonal psychology, invited Fritjof to her home to meet a group of us, transpersonal psychologists, and we listened to it and, you know, I immediately knew what the problem is. We were trying to link this new psychology, transpersonal psychology, to a 17th century philosophy, the mm -hmm. Cartesian-Newtonian uh, 
paradigm. paradigm which was linked with monistic materialistic philosophy which wasn't the philosophy of either Newton or uh, Descartes this was like implanted grafted on that you know and so Frischoff uh, and I kind of hit it off and we started doing seminars which were called journeys beyond space and time sounds about right <laughs> Frischoff would take the morning and uh, told the participants what modern physicists think about matter, the world of matter, you know. And that since the time of the discovery of radioactivity and uh, X-rays, uh, how the concept of matter was changing from the Newtonian uh, atoms, which were indivisible. Uh, atom means something that cannot be cut any further. Temnein mm -hmm. is to cut atom. You cannot cut it any further. Mm -hmm. But they found out that the X-rays went through this through the atoms. So they were not these billiard balls. They were really empty. And Fritschhoff talked about how much uh, stuff, matter, physics uh, lost just from going from the idea of the atom as being solid to what was called a planetary model, where there was a nucleus in the middle and then the electrons whirling at the very fast speed and he says if you imagine an atom blown to the size of a cathedral uh, the size of the nucleus would be like a pinhead in the middle of the cathedral and the electrons would be like specks of dust sort of whirling where the walls are and the inside of the cathedral is how much matter physics lost just in this first step from the solid atom to the planetary model and then he said, but of course it turned out that even the, the nucleus was not solid. There were then protons and neutrons. And then it turned into like several hundred of subatomic particles all the, dime, all the way dime, down to quarks. Yeah. And so they found out that matter was essentially empty on the subatomic level. You couldn't even say whether something was there. There were just probability that is there or, you know, probability where it's located and so what what was left then was more related to consciousness had to do with patterns with uh, mathematical equations and so on and uh, so this was quite exciting and uh, then Fritschhoff continued you know talking uh, the whole universe is really vibratory system we shouldn't be there are no objects there are only fields and and uh, kind of condensation of fields. Uh, David Bohm said uh, we shouldn't be even using uh, nouns because everything is a process. Mm. I mentioned, you know, this morning it would be, I would be Stan Groffing and this would be <laughs> Oaklanding. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's true though, that, that uh, fallacy of something being stable and eternal is yeah. just something we used as a symbol. And then he or... talked, he talked about, uh, the theories of the beginning of the universe. You know, 13.8 billion years ago, there was this dimensionless point, singularity, and there was explosion and Big Bang. And that's where time and space were created out of nothing. And uh, the whole, uh, all the matter that now creates billions of galaxies was pouring out of that uh, singularity. Yeah, nothing or everything, depending yeah. on... Then he talked about, you know, black holes, uh, white holes, uh, you know, wormholes and so on. So uh, we had, we took lunch, you know, and then we came after lunch. People's minds were completely blown. 
<laughs> for Richard Wetzel. So when I came with my psychedelic stuff, it was sounded pretty much down to earth. You know, easy. <laughs> that was the easy you stuff. Know, like maybe past lives and uh, you know, you're living your birth and uh, you know, psycho spiritual death, rebirth, and so on. And I was talking about what can happen in certain special states of mind. And but you Fritjof had how many was describing the reality, the material reality that we live in? I heard in this morning's introduction of you actually that you'd worked with like ten thousand different people with uh, at at that point. Is that is that number uh, accurate from what I heard? That there's well, I, I that was your with data set over four thousand people mm -hmm. in psychedelic sessions where I was present personally, mm -hmm. and then I counted uh, between. But close to forty-five thousand people that I have seen in psychic, in holotropic breathwork sessions. Mm -hmm. But we also do big groups. I mean, I was just there when they were having the experiences, but then the processing is done in small groups. So I right. I didn't s hear the stories of all of them. It's where the facilitators that were helping. But I was there, you know, when forty-five thousand people had the the holotropic breathwork experience. It seems to me that there's no psychiatrist that has that amount of data on people experiencing peak experiences. I mean, that has to place you as singularly, you know, the bearer of as much knowledge on that field between the breath work, which creates these, you know, these altered states, these peak experiences, as well, of course, as the LSD and the other uh, entheogens that you might have worked with. I mean, that, that amount of data is places you as a pretty unique authority on that on that state yeah, when, at least when you are talking about upfront uh, you know legal research i mean there were people who right were doing underground work for 40 years when it was for, forbidden to do it officially yeah so they, they must be people who have seen you know at least that number i'd but love to meet them that would be amazing but yeah that's something that generated uh information that was made available you know to yeah to the world to the academic world and through that process you developed uh, an understanding of um what you called the basic prenatal matrices these different forces that you deal with during the birth process that yeah. kind of shape and color your life until you kind of address those situations and kind of integrate them and move forward and uh, i was hoping you could kind of explain um, roughly that theorem. Yes, well, I came into this work equipped with my medical training. Uh, I'd say pretty biased because uh, I studied medicine at the time when we had a Marxist regime. We were controlled by the Soviet Union, so we got really the purest materialistic doctrine. Everything that was considered to be idealistic was either ridiculed or it was censored out. Uh, and then I had um, psychoanalytic training, seven years of, uh, you know, personal training analysis, which started uh, up front legally, but then we had to go underground because Freud was unacceptable for the communists. So it was just a private arrangement between me and the, my analyst. But those were the two things that I had, medical training and psychoanalytic training. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I was not quite satisfied with psychoanalysis, you know. Initially, not just not the theory of psychoanalysis, but the practice. I realized how long it takes, how much time, energy, money, and I, I knew that the results were not exactly breathtaking. 
you know. Yeah. Talking I, as I, a, I, I was there seven years, and if you say, did it change you? I would say, well, I changed. You know, but seven years is a long time. You were Stan Groffing. People, people change anything. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that that was when I um, volunteered for a psychedelic session, and that just uh, you know completely changed the direction where I was going. I said, you know, I was so excited about these non-ordinary states of consciousness. And said, I'm already a psychiatrist. Uh, then, you know, the best thing I can do is to study these non-ordinary states. So if you look at my professional career, I have done very little professionally that would not be in one way or another related to these non-ordinary states. And actually, not all non-ordinary states, but uh, I focused on a special large subcategory uh, which have healing, transformative, and evolutionary potential. You know, experiences of uh, shamans in a mm -hmm. uh, initiatory crisis, or experiences of the initiates in the um, uh, rites of passage, or the experiences of the initiates in the mysteries of death and rebirth in antiquity, or the kinds of experiences that are in use by various uh, forms of what I call technology of the sacred, different forms of yoga. Uh, different schools of Buddhism, from Theravada to Zen and Vajrayana, uh, the experiences of the Sufis induced by, you know, chanting, breathing, or the whirling, whirling dervishes, yeah. Kabbalistic uh, experiences, and so on, and of course experiences induced by, by psychedelics. So, is that this where you... was my? It became my kind of, I, I say, uh, vocation, uh, profession, and passion, you know, for yeah. my life. And we're all grateful for it. Would you say that for when you were developing the holotropic breathing method, did you draw on the yogic tradition? Was that where you got the the idea, the the kind of kundalini practices that were in its own way hyperoxygenating? No, no, or where did is, that come from? Uh, I'll try to be as, as uh, brief as I can be for this, but it goes back to uh, the work with psychedelics where... Initially, what happened that when we took psychedelics or gave psychedelics, that sometimes the result was great. It's very much like in Hoffman's first, uh, Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD mm -hmm. by accidental intoxication. He had a very challenging session, but he ended up with a feeling of rebirth and, and the feeling that many of his problems were washed away. And this was the beginning of a, a new period in his life. Now, this was not always that way. Sometimes we opened up something new that didn't get finished, or sometimes the symptoms got accentuated. And initially, we didn't think that we can do anything about it. You just have to schedule another session and hope that it's going to be a better result. And then it happened a couple of times that uh, my patients were coming down from the session. The drug was already wearing off, and they didn't feel comfortable. They felt uh, some kind of difficult emotions or difficult physical feelings. Uh, the first one was a man who was coming down, the drug was wearing off, and he felt really full of rage mm -hmm. and then had a pain in the shoulder and was kind of hitting this shoulder and say, I, if I could get through this uh, pain in the shoulder, I think I would feel better. And they said, would you put some pressure there? So I would go and put some pressure, and not enough, more, more. Not enough more. My, my thumb was already 
breaking and, mm -hmm. and uh, that keep pushing. And then he started growling and started making faces and started coughing and shaking. And we were doing it for some time, maybe 20 minutes, half an hour most. And he felt totally relaxed and a wonderful place. And another time I came and the patient, she was uh, coming down, the drug was wearing off and she felt terribly nauseated and some kind of pain in the belly. And I came and I pushed on it, trying to find out what it was, like the, what doctors do, you know, and this incredible projectile vomiting. You know, <laughs> couple of couple of episodes of that. And she was great. No nausea, any, you know, ecstatic. And so I realized that you can do something to help the integration. Uh -huh. And so I started doing it systematically. When somebody was coming down, I would say, how are you feeling? What's happening in your body? And so on. And then, do you want to do some body work if there was a problem? Yeah. And so I started doing it systematically, and then it happened several times that as I was doing this body work, which I basically, you know, discovered by following the instructions of my patients, some of the patients started breathing fast, what's called saccadic breathing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they told me that the fast breathing took them back into the session. The drug was already wow. wearing off, but they were like having a full-blown psychedelic experience. So I realized that you can do something with your breathing to bring out unconscious material. And then there was a situation where I had already done a lot of the research and it was becoming more and more complicated. We couldn't get funds and permissions for it. And I had so much material that I wanted to put it down, write, write it down. And I got uh, invitations from several publishers because we were, at that time, we were the last group that was doing official research. And, and you know, LSD was, uh, was uh, making headlines. It was a very, very interesting subject. So they said, would you, do you write a book? And so I made a contract with Viking Press for, for two books. And I wanted to take a, a sabbatical. And Michael Murphy, the co-founder of Esalen, uh, met me in a party and said, what are you doing these days? I said, taking a sabbatical, write a couple of books. He said, why don't you come to Esalen? Esalen is a beautiful place to write books. You know, we're going to give you a house on the ocean. Uh, there are beautiful hot springs there. These are all, you know, sacred Indian grounds. It's a big sur in, yep. in uh, California on the, on the coast between, between San Francisco and, and uh, Los Angeles. And so I accepted that, and the deal was that I was doing a certain number of workshops for SLN and trading it for room and board. It's great, great. You know, Big Sur is beautiful. There are sort of whales going by twice a year, and right. there are seals and, and otters uh, playing. Idyllic. And, and monarch butterflies sort of flying, <laughs> flying by and ending up on the trees. So it was great. And I was talking in the workshops about the research that we did, you know, what kind of experiences people had, what kind of impact it had on them and so on. And people were not very happy with me. They said, well, it's great to hear about all these fantastic experiences, but can't we do something, you know, don't you have a little stash somewhere <laughs> on the side? And I said, well, I don't think people in SLN would be very happy, you know, I don't have legal access to psychedelics. 
And then I started thinking, what can we do? And I remembered these things that breathing Unbelievable. Can, can do something. And so we started, we started sort of playing with that and we found out that people can have powerful experiences. Um, uh, Christina, my late wife, you know, she, she was a yoga teacher. And so she brings some of the exercises and the, the preparation into it and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was, so there were this element of yoga, but so not the inspiration for the breathwork was not coming from yoga. This was coming from this psychedelic work. And then something major happened. Uh, we were initially uh, working in a strange way. We asked people to lie down in a, with their heads towards the center. We were playing the music like we played in psychedelic sessions. People were holding hands and doing faster breathing. And there were always some people who were very close to some unconscious material so that it triggered them. And then we stopped working with the group and we worked with the people, one or two people who started going through something. And the other people were watching. But sometimes it happens that just watching somebody reliving birth triggered other people. So sometimes we ended up with three people going on. And I was working with one person, Christina with another, and then the people in the group were sort of taking care of somebody else who, who needed just the support, right. waiting for us to, to come there and do some, do some body work. And you said that, so you found overwhelmingly that what people were experiencing in that breath work was some element of the birth process. How that did was you... very common. Yes. Yeah. So that was just a common ground that you that you saw. But those were those were the major breakthroughs. I think I came equipped with psychoanalysis and medicine, and uh, according to psychiatry, there wasn't supposed to be anything in the psyche that was not uh, part of postnatal biography. Freud said the the newborn is a tabula rasa. There's nothing that precedes birth, including birth itself, that mm -hmm. doesn't somehow count. And then, you know, the first major breakthrough for me, I see people going through births. And then I, I took a high dose myself and I went through birth. And, and uh, so then I was dealing, you know, like a, a freshly baked psychiatrist with the opinion of the authorities who were telling me that it's not possible to uh, relieve per experience births. There's no memory because the cortex is not what's called myelinized. The neurons don't have the protective fatty sheets that are they considered to be necessary for creating memory. And then when it happened again and again to me and other people, I said, well, it's obviously a clinical effect. It's up to the physiologist to explain where it's recorded, if it's cannot be recorded in the cortex. Maybe it's in subcortex, maybe it's in the spinal cord, maybe it's in every cell of the body. Because in biology they teach you there is also protoplasmatic memory. Every cell has a certain capacity of creating primitive memory. And so, mm -hmm. and so then I incorporated this uh, this uh, uh, breathwork uh, into this breathwork the perinatal level, the, the experience of birth and prenatal, and then a major major challenge came when people started having other experiences like experiencing something from other centuries uh, sometimes with the same of personal remembering when it was uh, like this happened to my pre in my previous lifetime 
and then they started seeing mythological images from the collective unconscious. That's how a major, major conceptual struggle to accept the possibility, you know, that we can have a record of something that happened before we were born. And before what, we were conceived, actually, before we were conceived. Right. And it and it it's a question that some of the Eastern traditions that believe in reincarnation have less of a hard time with. It's just in that Western model that developed where you have yeah, to have that know, concrete on the one hand they have methods if you if you are involved in some kind of intense meditation those experiences can happen and they also had the experiences in india the number of young children between the age of three and five start talking about previous lifetimes there's actually a researcher ian stevenson from the university of virginia who studied over three thousand children who between the age of three and five uh, claimed that that they remembered their past life. They gave names and places. And in many instances, he actually identified the village or the town and took the child there. And the child knew the topography and uh, knew names of the people. Or, uh, that Sharmod Parma, was one of the famous cases, uh, claimed that he was a businessman selling cookies and uh, soda water. And they found the shop. Uh, he knew the names of the people. He recognized some changes that they made with the furniture in the shop. <laughs> and then they wanted to create a test. So they created a malfunction of the machine that cre that made the soda water. And the little kid came and was able to fix it. Okay. <laughs> That's so those, wild. Are made, those are amazing uh, case stories. Uh, why, is, why are we so hesitant to even with evidence like that? Why are we so hesitant as a culture to uh, adopt? you know, believe in something like reincarnation. I, I, just know, the stubbornness I, of that. Today I find it very, very difficult to understand because as if as if everything was clear and understandable, like why does anything exist at all? Where does that come from? <laughs> why not nothingness? Why something exists, you know? Where does consciousness come from? And the, the existence, a lot, lot about existence is a kind of miraculous. Yeah. It's not all understandable with with uh, simple reason, uh, you know. Down earth, everything that uh, cannot be related to s circumcision or toilet training. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, you see so many miraculous things. I mean, in the world, you know. Especially if you're involved in psychedelic medicine, then that yeah. seems. I to... don't know why we like everything to be explained in such a pedestrian, uninteresting way. Maybe it is just that the remnants of having to throw out the the superstitions yeah. and the harmful parts. It's just that was a defense mechanism. Let's just get yeah, rid of it all. Show that you're sane and rational. Yeah, rational and that person. you know, and no all nonsense, of the sense, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think we're I think we're finally transcending that era, yeah. which is a must be a beautiful thing for you to see when the yeah. collective conscious and yeah. consciousness and mass is becoming aware of both science and metaphysics blending in a really beautiful way. You know, if you are scientifically trained in, in the Western way, uh, everything seems to be chains of uh, causes and effects. Everything that happens has some cause and causes something else. And we seem to be able to deal with it quite well until we go to the beginning. What is the cause of causes? You know, <laughs> Then nobody wants to go there very yeah. much. That's the and, realm of metaphysics at that point. And That's... Terence McKenna was great about it. He said, 
give me one miracle and I explain everything else. <laughs> Where the universe came from and then everything is cause and effect. But, yeah. but I, I didn't complete that story of the holotropic breathwork. So we were doing this and then uh, with, the, with the circle and uh, you know, the music and so on. And then one day we had a workshop coming, which were, had 46 people. And people come to Esalen from all over the world, like South America, uh, Europe, Australia, and so on. Uh, and I was working in the garden. I was lifting a beam, and I threw off my back. And I, it was like having a dagger sort of in my back. Now, if you do body work with people, you get all the, all the concussions and so on. I couldn't imagine sort of coming close to anybody and do something with my back. And so we were saying, saying, what are we going to do with them? We had 46 people. We promised, you know, breathwork, uh, working with breathwork and music. And then we finally said, we'll let them breathe with each other. We'll pair them up. And we just explained what they would do, what we see, you know, press on this place and that place. And we'll just supervise this. And so we did it. And this was such a success that we never did it differently. Not only had, you know, most of the people had experiences in the group, but the sitters were excited. They said, what a, what a privilege it to be there in such an intimate situation with another, with the process of another person, and how much they learned from the process of, uh, from others. And uh, that they started feeling they actually would like to become facilitators and, mm -hmm. and do this kind of work with others. Yeah. So that was the final four. Now we work in, in pairs always, and it was music. And, and, uh, you know, then the major changes then where we went to anthropological archives where uh, anthropologists collected the trends in using music from all over the world. You know, many cultures developed uh, drumming rhythms that if you, if you study it in the laboratory, they had the power to change the synchronization, desynchronization in the brain, the brain waves and so on. So they have very, very powerful... Um, uh, effect on the on the brain waves and create a trance state. So we were then using, you know, from African tribes, mm -hmm. Balinese music and and the uh, Pajans and Kirtans, the chants of the Hindus or some Tibetan ritual music and so on, in combination with the breathing. But people being paired up, so everybody has his personal assistant, so to say, and then several of the people who are went through the training, they are there for the whole group to deal with some of the situations that untrained people have difficulties handling. Yeah, in my experience, it, it seems what the process that I've gone through was almost like the earlier stages of what you were doing, where there's the facilitators that mostly do the work and everybody breathes at the same time. Um, but, you know, of course, getting to similar spots, emotional catharsis, moments of clarity, even yeah. visionary states that have been extremely powerful. And, you know, people discredit that. I remember uh, my fiance, you know, who's actually right here in the room, we go to a, a retreat where we were going to do breath work. And she's looking at me like, breath work, come on, you know, because we've done psychedelics together. Like, this is going to be nothing. You know, I'm just going to go. Maybe I'll fall asleep. She thought she might fall asleep. She didn't know what was going to happen. And we go through and, you know, I'd done it once before. I knew how powerful it was. And then seeing that incredible emotional release where just tears of years of you know, repressed feelings came flooding out and a lightness that comes on the other side of that. I mean, it can be as potent as any medicine that you ingest and it's right here. It's like these, this diamond that we have 
all we have to do is look for it, you know, almost like a quantum physics thing. Like you, you look for it, you observe it and you find it, you look inside your breath and find this thing. And then you have this diamond that you can use, you know, as a sacred power stone that you have with you at any given point. You know, actually this was a very unique opportunity for us because we did the pre-conference workshop with the holotropic breathwork mm-hmm. and this is a psychedelic conference so there's enormous number of people with personal experiences and so we heard in the in the sharing groups when people were comparing that also the same as you are saying they didn't expect very much because they had yeah. experienced psychedelics and they were quite impressed i've done ayahuasca this is just breath <laughs> you know how, how much you can actually do yeah and i'm still surprised something with all the experience the intensity of the experience that you sometimes see when I have some suspicion that maybe that person so well Stan Grove worked with psychedelics so let's slip something and uh, he's going to handle it you know? <laughs> and then when two hours later they're fine and they're talking about their experiences I know it couldn't have been yeah. LSD yeah there's a so let me see you know one of the other methods for creating peak experience which I was exposed to and learned was ecstatic dance which is basically utilization of music and movement to create a similar kind of trance state where you can escape the egoic self and access that that force of consciousness by allowing just your body and the music to take over your uh, somatic processing to a certain degree and i've you know i really took to that i've always enjoyed movement and dancing and i took to that and i applied um you know to as as the guide of that practice, which I've now led several groups through, I applied your BPM one through four model as the as the journey, as the the hero's journey that we go on through music. So, let me see. Now that I have you here, let me see if I roughly got it right, and maybe we can make make some improvements. So, in uh, in BPM one, the um, the person is maybe inside. You should say that the the concept, the BPM, basic perinatal matrix. Yeah. Those are certain experiential clusters uh, that people link to the consec- four consecutive stages of yep. birth. So, basic perinatal matrix one, two, three, four yeah. relates to the stages as the, the fetus is going through uh, biological birth. Yep. Yeah, yeah, things that are loosely everyone experiences yeah. at some at some given point. So, there's the experience of being in the womb. All is well. Food is coming effortlessly into your body. If it's body. a good pregnancy. If it's a good pregnancy, yeah. for the most part. Um, and at least in the dance, that's how we start. We suppose it's a good pregnancy and everything is moving along quite well. You're swimming in a confined space, but it feels like infinite space because you don't really know the difference. You're in fluid and, and kind of all as well. And then... Kind of oceanic. or Oceanic, yeah. sure, yeah. And blissful, you know, in its own, in its own way. And then um, BPM2 is when the water breaks and that's the all hell breaks loose moment what the hell is happening to my world my world is collapsing in on me the contractions contraction contractions chaos literally apocalypse the world is coming to an end for all you know like what the hell is this you've never experienced it before you've never had a data set of anything close to that and it's that moment of chaos without knowing at all what to do and the cervix is not open so we are really in a no exit kind of trapped Hopeless. Yeah, where Franz Kafka's mole with no with no back door, yeah. yeah. And then, then uh, in BPM three, the cervix opens, and we realize, oh, we got a canal, and we got to get through there. And that's where that kind of warrior archetype comes—that yes. desire to fight. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it through this thing. And that 
the assertion of your will in order to to find a better means to make it out of the out of the chaos and then in bpm4 the final stage that gasp of air when you make it out of out of the birth canal and experience life this actual yeah. first birth which we experience as a rebirth but yeah. that you, first birth got it yeah 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 maybe one little addition was that the, the third matrix actually is also uh, generates a lot of sexual energy that the choking somehow creates a f something that feels very much like sexual arousal uh -huh. and so people get a lot of sexual imagery and they don't understand how that interesting generates. but it seems that that with pain and choking the human organism generates a kind of energy that has very much the quality of uh, of sexual energy do you think that's related to the endorphin response that's similar or do you think it's some kind of psychological connection because that's very interesting to connect it to that well i think there's a larger pattern which is that uh, that life's threat can activate uh, the sexual drive mm -hmm. and this is called in uh, on a collect in a collective scale it's called in psychology uh, avant de luge behavior before flood before catastrophe like when there's some kind of catastrophe coming the war is coming or so on, or some you know the, uh, this uh, natural disaster some kind of cataclysm yeah people tend to throw themselves into promiscuous sexual behavior and this is seen as a as a potential um, compensatory mechanism there's going to be death and so and nature is trying to sort of generate some <laughs> reserves, you know. Maybe that's why all these prophets come up with these doomsday stories. They're just trying to get everybody horny. Yeah. That's that's the plan. 2012 Mayan apocalypse was just a big pickup line to to have more sex with with people. It's really interesting, though. I, I think it, you know, clearly, uh, clearly seems to make sense. It's it's interesting how the mind and body are so entwined in so many ways and we try to keep them separate you know we try to say okay here's mind over here here's body over here here's consciousness over here when really they're just completely inexorably wrapped you know and entwined you know, in each the, other a lot of the abnormal sexual practices can actually be understood from this connection between birth and sex like uh, for, like uh, for example there are the ischemic sexual practices where people try to choke themselves and then uh, you know masturbate or something mm -hmm. like david Carradine, who died was, doing was that found and they thought initially it was suicide because he lost the footing <laughs> on the on the stool but it was really he was known to to do the sexual practice yeah or uh, what is called the bondage syndrome people who wants to want to be bound and and choked as part of a sexual situation yeah or being hurt or hurting others and so on if you if you look at this uh uh, third matrix it's a situation where you experience sexual arousal in a situation where you are inflicting pain on another organism on your mother another organism your mother is inflicting pain on you you cannot choke you cannot breathe you you, you choke uh there is also this uh, other forms of biological material yeah, you know, so all these kinds of things that that are described by Kraft Ebbing in what he called psychopathia sexualis or abnormal sexual practices, can be seen as having the roots sort of in this very strange combination of sexual arousal, this vital danger and, and pain and and aggression and so on, anxiety. 
That's really interesting. And then further study into it, actually, um, I was reading some studies that have shown when they measure the brainwave patterns that you can create certain peak experiences by mimicking these, like in these power exchange kind of dominant and submissive sexual practices, the dominant experience is more of a classic flow state where, you know, it's a, a, a drop from beta frequency into alpha frequency and that, you know, sense of timelessness where everything drifts away. And then the, uh, the submissive will experience transient hypofrontality where, you know, they again lose track of time and pain and space and everything starts to blur and it. Those states where you're losing the self tend to be some of the most pleasurable states. So you combine sexual pleasure with a positive brain state and you have buttons that, you know, people are going to press, <laughs> you know, when you can press the buttons that feel good. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a real honor. It's been a pleasure to meet you as I, you know, as I said in the intro, um, you know, I grew up in a house where your name was commonplace and, and the worldview of things that we were looking at, you know, were, um, was shaped by the work that you've done. And, and of course, both in psychedelics in breathing and just in, the in the philosophy and psychology itself. So I honor you, sir. And, and yes. thank you for coming on the show. It's a real full circle a moment. Wonderful for me. interview. You know, this, uh, I've done many of them, as you can imagine in my life. And it, the, the quality of the interview frequently depends on the interviewer, whether you know the subject, you had some experiences, you can ask intelligent questions, you know. Uh, so this was this has been great, very, very pleasant, exciting. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. That was incredible. Thanks, everybody. Bye. You've just listened to some of the groundbreaking healing potential of psychedelic medicines, and you might be wondering what you can do to help. I've set up a page at thecureisnear.com. Again, that's thecureisnear.com that has some donation options, has some more information, has some info that you can share with people that may not be familiar. So please check it out. When I look out at the world, I don't see a single cause that can cause potentially more benefit for the world than the legalization of psychedelic medicine in the hands of skilled practitioners. Check it out, thecureisnear.com. Thank you so much.